Good morning. And please turn in your Bible to Isaiah 55. I will confess to you that I didn't have the foresight to plan to preach Isaiah 55 when we had a Gideon speaker here, but in God's providence, we are in Isaiah 55. And as you read it and you see what's in it, I think you'll see how they connect with what's just come before us. And I want to begin the sermon with a story. Uh, once upon a time, there was a poor pastor at a small Baptist church, and the biggest thorn in this pastor's side were two brothers who continually liked to throw their weight around. They were powerful because they were wealthy, and together they gave over half of the church's annual budget. And uh, they liked to throw their weight around. They were powerful, and they knew they had power because of the money they brought to the table. And uh, the pastor didn't like all the things that they wanted to do and the agendas they would push within the church, but he would often cave in and give them what they wanted because he and the church were desperate for money. But one day, a day came when the pastor was studying Isaiah like we have, and he was exposed to the greatness, the grandeur, the glory, the, how big and powerful our God is in Isaiah. And so he made the commitment uh, in his heart to have integrity, to no longer give in to the brothers, even if it cost him his ministry. And not long after making that commitment to have integrity and to stand up to these brothers, one of the brothers died. And uh, the other brother came to pa the pastor privately before the funeral and said, Pastor, I know that my brother and I have not always treated you right, and uh, I want to I make things right. I want to try to turn over a new leaf with you. And as a gesture of my goodwill, I'm willing to cut a check to the church for a million dollars if you'll agree at the funeral to tell everybody that my brother was a saint. And uh, the pastor knew he shouldn't take that check but, I mean, things were rough, things were difficult, they, they were in the red, and uh, so he, he took the check. And at the funeral, um, you know, he still felt this need to have integrity. Many of the people in the congregation knew about the way that this man lived his life, and uh, the pastor needed to display integrity, and so he told them, uh, with the casket in front of them all, he said, I, I want you guys to know um, that uh, this man, his confession of faith and the way he lived was not necessarily pleasing to the Lord. He, there were many ways, you know, that he was inconsistent. In some ways, he was a very, actually a very wicked hypocrite, but compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> now, there's a lot of broken promises in that story, right? Uh, those brothers over the years, they probably uh, didn't always keep their word to the pastor. Certainly the pastor did not fulfill the spirit and intention of the agreement he made when he took that check. But in contrast today, we're going to learn, God is faithful to every promise He makes. He keeps every promise, absolutely 100% of them. And in the passage we come to today, we're going to see His promise to abundantly pardon people who have lived wicked, sinful lives, if they will simply confess what they've done and seek Him and turn back to Him. Uh, we're in Isaiah 55, and we already looked at the first half of this chapter uh, last week, and we saw from the first half of the chapter that everybody is spiritually hungry and thirsty, and this drives all of us to seek satisfaction. Blaise Pascal rightly observed, there once was in men a true happiness, 
of which now remain to him only the mark and an empty trace, which he tries in vain to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object that is only God Himself. We were meant to live in relationship with God. And what Blaise Pascal and, uh, observed and what Isaiah 55 teaches is that everyone is spiritually hungry and thirsty, and there are only two kinds of spiritual food and drink. There are the created things, which are uh, good. God made them as good gifts. They're enjoyable to a point, but they are inadequate to fill the void that is in our hearts uh, by our uh, estranged relationship with God. The only way to fill that void is having a restored relationship with God through His Son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the only spiritual food and drink that satisfies our souls, and we eat and drink of Him by faith. Those are all truths that we looked at last week. That was my review of last week's sermon. Uh, but those truths we learned from the first half of the chapter to those, let's now add what we can learn from the remainder of this chapter. Uh, I'm going to read the, in, the chapter in its entirety because I want you to hear the first verses even though we went through them last week, and then we'll see what the last half has in store for us. Starting in Isaiah 55, verse 1, we read, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him as a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will turn to you. Because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, for He will have compassion on him, and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Uh, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire." and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up, and it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. This morning, we're going to examine verses 6 through 13 of Isaiah 55, and the first thing I want to focus your attention on is the abundant pardon that God offers in verses 6 and 7. Again, verse 6 says, seek the Lord while He may be found, call upon Him while He is near. Uh, the author of Hebrews gives us a similar exhortation when he says, without faith, it is impossible to please God 
For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Uh, in verses 2 and 3, uh, verses 1, 2, and 3, really, there was rich spiritual food and drink offered to us that satisfies, but that food and drink is only for those who seek the Lord. But seeking the Lord is the last place that most of us look, uh, at least naturally, when we're looking to find satisfaction. C.S. Lewis aptly sums up our predicament this way, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Instead of listening to God, instead of turning back to Him so we could really live, we tend to try to find happiness in all the wrong places. We look for it in status, money, relationships, entertainment, cosmic romance, uh, career, having power, having titles, but it's all mud pies in the slum. The answer is to start seeking the Lord. Now, this command here in Hebrew to seek the Lord, uh, it's being used in the sense not of uh, seeking something that's lost that you don't know if you'll find it. It's used in the sense of seeking someone whom you already know to be there. Uh, just a, in, in Hebrew, I think I've said this before, but in Hebrew, the word listen or hear, if you remember in Deuteronomy, uh, you, there's the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? You shall love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The word hear at the beginning of that verse, in Hebrew, the nuance of that, what it communicates is not just hear God out. It means listen and obey. There, there's, a, there's a nuance that goes beyond what we would just think in English. Well, in the same way, the word seek here has the connotation of seeking someone you already know to be there and seeking them out with the, the commitment that you're actually going to find them and you're going to listen to what they have to say. And the Hebrew word near at the end of verse 6, it's from the familial vocabulary of kinship. It harkens back to the story of Ruth, and if you remember the, the Ruth story, right, Boaz was the next of kin in the line of the right of redemption for Ruth, and that comes in, into her story in a big way. You know, it's part of her deliverance. Uh, well, in the same way, God is near, He is next of kin to those who seek Him. So, taken together, the abundant pardon of verse 7 and the nearness of our Lord presents a very beautiful picture. But in verses 6 and 7, there's not just beauty there is urgency. Uh, seeking the Lord while He allows Himself to be found, calling upon Him while He makes Himself available, it communicates that this is a limited time opportunity. There is an expiration date on when God may be found as next of kin to those who seek Him. There is a point of no return beyond which He is not near for salvation. We're warned in the New Testament, it's appointed unto all mankind once to die, and after that comes judgment. Now is the time to call upon Him. Uh, the, the food, the comfort food, and the fine wine that He offers f is free for the taking, but it's a limited time offer. It's only available for a season. The time to seek God and be reconciled to Him is now. Verse 7 gives these additional instructions, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 
The main point of this verse is the pardon that God offers. And I don't know about you, but for me, uh, that, is, that is good news. But there is a, a, a problem. There is an issue that I have, anyway. Um, I don't know if you're the same, but if I'm going to seek the Lord, if I'm going to turn back to Him after the things I've done and said, I need to know how He's going to respond, right? I've done some things. I've said some things I'm not proud of. And I could picture Him saying, well, who do you think you are coming in here, right? You think you can say those things and do those things and just waltz in here? And, and if the Lord were to say that to me, if, if I were to receive that rebuke, I admit, you know, I, ah, I kind of deserve it. Or I, another part of me wonders, am I just going to come in, am I going to repent, and I'm going to find him to be ambivalent, you know? Is his response to me going to be something like, oh, you finally showed up. Well, throw, yourself, uh, throw your stuff in the corner. Can't you see I'm busy? right? I kind of wonder, like, oh, man, is that the response I'm going to get? But verse 7 assures us that if wicked people will confess their sin and turn from it, if we'll forsake our unrighteous thoughts, we will receive pardon. And how can God do that? How can, how can God allow people who have done wicked things, who have done evil, to receive this pardon? Well, we've already answered that question back when we were in Isaiah 53. The Lord's preeminent servant will come and voluntarily die as a guilt offering in the place of people who have sinned. He'll be a guilt offering to cover their sins. The Lord will cause the iniquity of us all to fall on His servant. His servant will voluntarily be pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Uh, And He will do this so that wicked and iniquitous though we are, God can treat us as if we've been righteous because the penalty has already been paid. God's abundant pardon is for those who confess their sin and uh, turn from it. And this is something that's consistent with what the rest of the Bible teaches. For instance, in Psalm 103, we learn, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. The prophet Micah tells Israel, the Lord will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, uh, and then he turns and says this to God, you will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. God chooses to forget the sins of those who have been justified by believing in the sacrifice of His servant. He explains it this way to the prophet Jeremiah, I will forgive their iniquities and their sins I will remember no more. Charles Spurgeon preached it like this, our sins may pile as high as the tallest mountains, but Jesus' blood, like Noah's flood, covers them all. Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. Amen? To sum up verses 6 and 7 then, uh, we should say it this way, God will abundantly pardon you if you'll confess your sin and turn from your wicked ways, but the offer of that pardon, it has an expiration date. Uh, there is an expiration date on when God may be found as next of kin to those who seek Him. There is a point of no return beyond which God isn't near for salvation. So, the time to seek Him, the time to call upon Him, the time to turn back to Him is now. Now is the time to repent and turn to the Lord. Now is the time to cry out to Him in prayer. Now is the time to seek Him and learn about who He's revealed Himself to be in His Word. And what the next few verses are going to go on to teach us is that you can't live without God's Word. You can't live without God's Word 
in your life, uh, but you have to pay, be patient because the argument builds. But I believe it begins in verses 8 and 9. Let's look again at verses 8 and 9. God says that He'll abundantly pardon, and then He goes on to say, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Mm. Now, these are, as you would sense, very rich verses, and they have to be applied in context. There's actually more than one way we need to see them applying uh, to the way that we think about life. And uh, so, let me give a, just a few sub-points that are applying what we learn in verses 8 and 9. First of all, uh, and I think you, you see this, this is obvious to everybody, verses 8 and 9 are a statement of the relative difference between God and man. Yes, we're made in the image of God. Yes, we bear a closer resemblance to God than the animals. Yes, we can know God in part through what He has revealed of Himself in Scripture. Yes, all those things are true. But there is nevertheless still a great abyss that separates us from God when we start making comparisons between God and us. And this is something that every one of us needs to bow the knee to and acknowledge. Uh, this was one of the important takeaways in my own Christian life uh, when I discovered it in, in my 20s. Uh, I'll never forget the, the conviction of it. I was reading a book called The Joy of Fearing God uh, by Jerry Bridges, which is a book, if you like Jerry Bridges and you've read some of his other books, I highly recommend this one to you. Uh, but on page 89 of this book, I was reading one day as a young man, and I came across these words. Bridges said, God's wisdom is infinite. Ours is finite. This absolute difference is one I think we fail to grasp. We tend to assume we would understand if God would just explain. We don't really believe that His ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts higher than our thoughts. I remember when I read that, just feeling the weight of conviction. It was like Jerry Bridges had launched a cruise missile at my heart. And here was the reason why. I had been treating God as if the only difference between Him and I is that He's omniscient and that I'm not. Uh, the unstated, I never would have said this out loud, I never would have even admitted this, but the unstated assumption in my heart was that if God would just give me access to all past, present, and future knowledge and give me enough time to sort through it all for myself, that eventually... I would, um, eventually, I would understand everything he's done, and I would agree with every decision he's made, and I would agree even with the evil and bad things that he has allowed to happen for a purpose, that, that that's the conclusion I would come to if he just gave me all the information and enough time to sift through it. Um, but the difference between God and I isn't just one of omniscience. He is higher than me. He is on a completely different level than us. He lives outside of creation. All of creation, and uh, you and I as part of creation, we are dependent upon Him. His goodness vastly exceeds our own. He loves on a completely different level than we do. His wisdom is higher than our wisdom. And that leads to the second point that we need to say, if you connect these verses in context with the offer of true satisfaction that's in verses 1 through 3, then we need to, they really amount to the Lord saying this, my wisdom 
is greater than your wisdom, and you're going to have to trust me that I know what I'm talking about. You're going to have to trust me that when I tell you true satisfaction is found in relationship with me, I'm not shining you on. Look, money and status and titles and achievement and endless entertainment and romance, they're good to a point, but they can't bear the weight of giving you the satisfaction your restless heart desires. Many of those created things are good gifts from God, and they can be enjoyed to a point, but they can't give you meaning and purpose in life. They can't fill the emptiness in your heart that's been caused by turning away from the Lord and going your own way so that you can live life your own way, or, or the way that you've run and hid from Him because of guilt and shame over your sin. Uh, maybe we could say it this way, brothers and sisters. What verses 8 and 9 are teaching us is that you, have, you and I have a decision. We need to make the choice about whether or not we believe God knows what makes us tick better than we do. That's really the choice. Do, do, am I going to say that I know myself better than He does, and I know what will make me happy, and I'm going to choose what I want? Or are we going to trust God that He designed us, He created us, He knows what makes us tick, and, and we can trust His revelation? Created things can't give us ultimate satisfaction. They can't bear the weight of that. And in these verses, uh, there's a call here really to trust God whose wisdom exceeds our own, and to listen to Him because He knows what He's talking about. I, I think many of you already sense this. I'm going to say this because I think it would be uh, uh, it, probably the most important thing for people with American ears to hear. I think you already sense this, but I just want to make sure I say it out loud so that we're all on the same page. Um, you don't need to study the Hebrew language to understand that when verse 9 uses the word higher, it means superior. God is saying, my wisdom, it's superior to your wisdom. The morality of my law, it's superior to the morality of the laws you like to make. Uh, my way of creating people to be permanently male or female from conception, that's superior to your way of telling them to choose their own gender and have a, a reassignment surgery that actually is just a, a one-time, never to be repeated, never can be reversed, mutilation. My ways are better than your. My definition of love is better than your definition of love. It's superior to that. My way of arranging family life with very narrow recourse for divorce because a man and a woman should be faithful and live together, committed together for life, that's better than your way of no-fault divorce. Like, my ways are superior to your ways. My thoughts are superior to your thoughts. That is, in essence, what God is saying in verses 8 and 9. The third implication of verses 8 and 9 in context is that God's thoughts and ways, think about this from the perspective of context. What came right before God said this about His thoughts and His ways? Well, what came right before then is uh, abundant pardon, forgiveness. So, one thing that is being communicated in these verses as well is that God's thoughts about forgiveness, God's thoughts about pardoning sinners are higher than, superior to our ways. Um, I think one of the reasons it's hard to believe that God will give us the pardon He promises to give, I think one of the reasons I struggle, as I was just illustrating with, you know, if I return back to God, what kind of response am I going to get, you know? And I, I gave you some some kind of responses he could, that he's not going to give, but that I fear him giving, right? One of the reasons that I think we, we struggle with that 
is because we know in human relationships, it's because of our experience with human relationships, right? You know in human relationships, you've experienced this, that if you betray someone and you wrong someone over and over and over and over again, there's a limit to how long somebody's going to put up with that. And, if, and, and when your eyes are opened to how much we have betrayed and offended and wronged God, as His law would suggest we have, when your eyes become open to that, it can be, you can feel very hopeless because you know in the human realm, no one's going to put up with this, right? They're going to be done with me. They'll abandon me. In the human realm, partially for uh, self-preservation. They're tired of getting hurt, and so to protect themselves, they're just going to be done with me because it's been all bad experiences. Well, the, the problem with that kind of thinking is that it treats God as if He's just an amplified version of one of us, right? But God's thoughts and God's ways when it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to pardon, are way high. He is way more lavish with the forgiveness He's willing to give to people than we are when other people who've wronged us ask for forgiveness. Maybe we could, we could uh, illustrate it this way. Uh, billionaires, billionaires don't pinch pennies, right? Uh, billionaires, Bill Gates isn't a man who lives a frugal lifestyle, right? Uh, and maybe we could say it this way. The Lord is a trillionaire when it comes to forgiveness. He's not pinching pennies. He's not being frugal about the pardon and forgiveness He gives those who confess. But that's not all that these verses would teach us. I actually believe in context, the most important part of verses 8 and 9 is that they're a setup for verses 10 and 11. Look at what verses 10 and 11 teach us about God's thoughts and ways being higher than ours. He says, for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnish seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Why is God getting our attention in verses 8 and 9? Uh, well, I think He's doing it as a setup for these verses. And what is the point of verses 10 and 11? Well, I believe the point is that you and I are both, we are in desperate need for God's Word which reveals His superior thoughts and ways to us. Think about it this way. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden, right? In the Garden of Eden, before Adam and Eve ever fell into sin, they were still dependent on God's revelation. Even though their intellects were not damaged by sin the ways, our, the ways ours have been, even though their ability to observe and learn from the world around them was greater than our own, they still needed God to speak to them. Even in their glorious unfallen states, Adam and Eve were not designed to be able to look out and observe the cosmos, take all the facts they had observed, and then from pure reason alone, build their way up to understanding meaning and purpose in life. No, they needed God's revelation. The problem wasn't at that point, the problem was not that they were sinners. At that point, the problem was that they were finite. They were limited. Uh, there are mysteries about life and its meaning uh, that can only be discovered by means of God's revelation. There are some things you can never discover by observation and research alone. There are some questions that science, as wonderful 
as it is, isn't capable of answering. It doesn't have the capacity to answer. And so, we need to say this. Our need for God's revelation is not first the result of our sin. It's the result of us being finite. It's the result of us being created beings. Being a human being is to be dependent on God. By nature of our humanity, we need the words of God. We need Him to express His thoughts to us so that we can understand things about ourselves and about the world and about existence and purpose and and about Him as our Creator that we could never discover or learn on our own. But our finiteness isn't the only issue. I think you, you guys sense this. We also need the Word of God because the chasm between us has been enlarged, candidly, because of our sin. And that's because sin, in some way, reduces all of us to fools. It distorts the way we think. It twists our desires. It warps our values. It causes us to look out on the world in uniquely self-focused, self-justifying, self-aggrandizing ways. We need God to interrupt our inner conversation, our inner dialogue about ourselves and our self-preoccupation. We need Him to interrupt that with His Word uh, so that we can learn things we will never discover on our own. If I could illustrate this in my own life, uh, I would illustrate it this way. Uh, Many of you know, many of you in our church family know that back in June, uh, Brooke and I celebrated our 20th anniversary. Um, Now, as we were celebrating our 20th anniversary, uh, my parents graciously watched the kids for us. We were able to go away and have some time together as a couple, and it was wonderful. And as we were together, um, one of the passages on my heart was this passage, Isaiah 55, and it wasn't because I knew I was going to have to preach it, and I was thinking through titles and outlines. That was not the level I was thinking on. The reason it was on my heart is because of this. I know I never could have stayed married or been a decent husband for 20 years without the guidance of God's Word. I wouldn't have had a clue how to do marriage. Without the confrontation of this book, I wouldn't have understood the selfishness in my own heart that I needed to turn away from. I wouldn't have known how to confess my sin and ask for forgiveness. I wouldn't have known how to navigate conflict. I wouldn't have understood the importance of giving some mercy to your spouse. I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known without this book. Brothers and sisters, do you love this book? Can you say in your heart of hearts, every shred of wisdom I have comes from this book? Every, the, the very few decent decisions I've made were inspired by this book. Can you say, Lord Jesus, you've made your thoughts available to me through your word, and I love you for it. Is that where you are this morning? I ask you, and I want to challenge you with this, because I know from experience that even though many of us in here have experienced Uh, amazing moments of illumination from God's Word, there are still long seasons of life that we can walk through where we basically relegate this book to some religious dimension of our lives, and we only open it up on Sunday morning. Um, uh, That's just something that we all uh, struggle with. Um, And so, my question for you would be, and, and, and let me stop there for a moment. What, that, what, what happens when we relegate it then is that we doom ourselves to walk through life thinking that we know more than we actually know, thinking that we're more virtuous than we actually are, and thinking that we need this book less than we actually 
do. And so I just challenge you, brothers and sisters, have you admitted your finiteness, that, that you need this book because it contains truth that you never could uh, find on your own? It, it contains things to love that you never even would have considered loving. It contains thoughts that you never even would have dreamed of or conceived of that God has revealed to us. Uh, these, these verses are a reminder of our need for God's Word. You can't live life well without God's Word. But the greatness of God's Word isn't just that it reveals life-giving truths to us that we never would have discovered on our own. It's also that it has a business end. God's Word gets things done. It gets things accomplished. It does what He uh, intends it to do. Uh, it does the work that He wants to get done. Um, where it is read, where it is listened to, where it is studied, it will not return without succeeding in the purpose for which He sent it. Which then begs the question, well then, what's the purpose He sent it for? And what's the purpose He sent it for again? Well, verses 12 and 13 answer that. Look at verse 12. Uh, in verse 12 we read, For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. That Hebrew word for go out at the beginning of the verse, it harkens back to the Exodus. It's used in Hebrew looking back to the Exodus account. It's going to be used later on in the Old Testament for the children of Judah coming out of their Babylonian captivity. Uh, it is a word that to, to really, to translate it into English, we need to say this. Go out, it doesn't mean like uh, uh, you go out your front door to work each morning. It is a word of liberation. It's a word of liberation from slavery. Slavery to what? Well, verses 1, 2, and 3, slavery to trying to find satisfaction in things that don't satisfy. Liberated, verse 7, from wicked desires and from unrighteous thoughts. Uh, you'll be liberated from sinful desires, from uh, the effects of sin. There will be an inner transformation in you of joy that you will experience when you're freed from that sin and then led forth in peace uh, with God. You'll be led forth by God Himself and living at peace with Him. And here's how that will happen. That's the result of God's Word. It frees people from their sins. Uh, it leads them out of their captivity uh, to living futile lives, you know, searching for satisfaction in all the wrong places. It frees them up from their sin. But then another question we could be asking is, but how? Like how, how, exactly, how exactly, precisely, does God's Word get that done? And verse 13 answers that. Verse 13, instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up, Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up, and it will be a memorial for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. <clears throat> this verse, it takes some explaining, okay? Um, you guys know this, that in Scripture, God uses a lot of word pictures from the physical world to try and portray spiritual reality to us, right? Jesus did that with his parables, right? And when you read through the gospel accounts, Jesus is constantly doing this with parables. The, the Bible uses metaphors to get across uh, spiritual truth and spiritual meaning. But the problem we have when we read verse 13 is that the metaphor is bizarre. I'm not a botanist, but I'm pretty sure that if I had a thorn bush in my backyard, rain 
would produce a bigger thorn bush, not a cypress, right? I've never seen nettles, uh, you know, be well watered and become myrtles. Just, I have never seen that in my life. So, what is going on? What is God, through the prophet, trying to communicate by stretching my botanical understanding? What is the bizarre metaphor telling us about what God intends the truth of His Word to reveal? Well, this strange word picture is meant to drive us to only one conclusion. The words of God are not designed to give us greater information and knowledge. They do do that as a byproduct, but they are not designed primarily to give us greater information and knowledge, but to produce in us radical, organic transformation. You see, the plants that are watered in this metaphor, they don't become bigger versions of themselves. They become entirely different plants, right? God's plan is for the reign of His biblical truth to fall on us and change us. And when that happens, we won't become better versions of ourselves like Oprah was desperately trying to help us with. We will become entirely different people. Uh, what God's Word does is it makes people different. God's Word turns angry people into peacemakers. God's Word turns demanding people into servants. God's Word turns greedy people into generous people. It turns faithless people into believers, proud people into humble people, rebels into obedient people, and idolaters into passionate worshipers of the one true God. The purpose of the Word of God is to radically transform us organically from the inside out. Uh, it is to change us from the thorn bushes and nettles that we are by nature and make us into cypresses and myrtles that are an everlasting monument to His transforming, uh, changing grace. Brothers and sisters, you can't live without the Word of God. You need its life-transforming power in your life. So, what should we do then? How can we take the truths of Isaiah 55 out the doors of this church service and, and uh, practice them in a life-giving, life-changing way uh, Monday through Saturday? Well, I'll confine myself to a few applications here. Uh, let's say five. I'll go through them quickly, though. First of all, and this one I think is obvious, put yourself in a position where you can live under the life-giving reign of God's Word. Make a commitment to have a recurring appointment in your calendar where you get alone with the Bible and you study it for yourself. Uh, you could, if, you, if you're a good audio learner and you're not distractible, you could listen to God's Word on audio, right? Maybe while you're driving. Uh, you can uh, listen. Uh, here's another one. Find a faithful Bible-teaching church where God's Word is actually read out loud from the pulpit, and the pastor makes some attempt to explain it, and then make the commitment that you're going to be there, you know, every Sunday, unless you're sick or on vacation, uh, and you're going to get yourself once a week on Sunday mornings under the reign of God's Word. Uh, another thing you can do, listen to good preaching. One of the wonders of the age we live in is that you can listen to so many pastors who are better preachers than me just with your phone, right? It's, all their sermons are available for free. So listen to good expository preachers like John MacArthur and H.B. Charles and John Piper and Alistair Begg. Uh, get yourself under the reign of God's Word. Now, second, and this is the most important application, so listen carefully. 
I know that's weird, right? Most pastors would put the most important application first or last so it's ringing in your ears, right? But, but I got to put this one second today. You'll see why. This is the most important one. Um, once you've made the commitment to schedule some time to study God's Word for yourself, once you've made your plan to rededicate yourself with commitment to getting more of God's Word in your life, this is the very next thing you need to do. Confess that on Monday morning, you probably won't want it, right? Just confess it. This comes from personal experience. It is a privilege to be a pastor. It's a privilege to study God's Word. It is a privilege that I get to be up here proclaiming it to you right now. And I wish that I could stand up here and tell you that I wake up every morning with enthusiasm to study God's Word as your pastor. I wish I could say that to you, but there are mornings where I wake up and all I care about is my day going the way I planned it, right? There are moments when all I want is something that tastes good for breakfast. That's all I want, not, not something healthy. I want toast with jam on it. Uh, there are moments when I don't care about the redeeming work of the Lord and His kingdom <clears throat> because all I want is to just check out and watch some TV, right? And what, what does that say about me? Even though I have experienced His life-transforming Word in my life, even though I've experienced moments of illumination and transformation, I still am morally weak. I am still spiritually fickle. And so I need… It's funny, you know, you come to church on Sunday morning. I don't know about this. I get to preach now, so it's a little different than when I was sitting in the pews. But I feel like when I was sitting in the pews, I would come to church Sunday morning and I would see things with clarity. I would see life clearly. It would sort of reorient me to reality and, and to what I needed to be doing. And then like Monday morning, Tuesday morning, it was a fog again, you know? And I just didn't see things clear. And what was going on is the desires of my heart were leading me in the wrong direction to drift the rest of the week. And so I would just say uh, these resolutions to get yourself under the reign of God's Word they're great resolutions, but we also need to remember that we have weakness. Even when we make these resolutions, there are going to be moments where w when we come to the time we, we carved out for it, we're not going to desire it, and it's going to be tempting to skip it and do other things, and we need to pray for God's grace to, to, uh, to have the strength of character to do what we know we should. Third, I know some of you are already very self-controlled, self-disciplined. Some of you already have good, good habits of Bible reading. You know, you're, you're already here with us, you know, four weeks out of four each month, and so you're already doing a great job. The one ob observation I would make in the book of Psalms is that in the Psalms, you do see uh, David and the other psalmist consistently putting themselves under God's Word. At one point, David talks about meditating on God's Word day and night. But what stands out to me is not so much the consistency of them getting themselves under God's Word, but their delight in it. And so I would just say, brothers and sisters, work at delighting in God's Word. Work at not just reading it because you have a plan and you're, you're a driven person and you're going to check off the box, but work at enjoying it. Stop as you're reading through it and studying it and think about what is this saying about God? What, what is the beauty of God that I see through these verses? What, I, what is in this that is awakening me to something I should be thankful for that I was clueless about before I read it, right? Just uh, I pray to the Lord 
uh, to show you wonderful things from His Word that you've been missing when you've been re- you just read over it and didn't see it for what it was. Work at enjoying God's Word. And then fourth, as you try to influence others for Jesus, unleash the reign of God's Word. Whether they're a fellow believer that you're trying to encourage or whether they're someone who ha- still hasn't placed their faith in Christ, uh, you can unleash God's Word by quoting it or alluding to it. Or maybe if you like uh, Bible memory, maybe quoting a verse that's particularly relevant uh, for a conversation. If you do, it will accomplish good things. It will succeed in the matter for which God sends it. If I may change the metaphor of verses 12 and 13, or 10 and 11, maybe we could say it this way. You be faithful to sow the seed of God's Word in the hearts of other people, and God will uh, cause it to produce a harvest in their life in His timing. And then uh, fifth, uh, think about supporting ministries like the Gideons. You know, the primary thing they're doing is trying to unleash God's Word by simply giving it to people, by placing it in, in uh, hotels and hospitals and prisons where people can have access to it and pick it up and hear God speak. Uh, these, I think, are ways that we can take Isaiah 55 with us and benefit from it. Brothers and sisters, you need the reign of God's Word in your life. And by His grace, it's my prayer for you that as you're faithful to spend time in it, He'll show you wonderful things from it. Let's pray.